It's like the Mara was on this uh, lorry on the back there, uh, and before I was standing on the way. Now I kind of I'm standing on the side of the road, but still, and Mara kind of it's it's a driverless lorry that just <laughs> somewhere or uh, nowhere or whatever, and and it comes by again and it's again. It's even worse than that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a driverless lorry that is out to get you. Yeah, yeah, yes. But but at least now I can stand on the side watching it. But but Mara is on there and 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 uh, putting uh, his spell on me. It's some kind of spell. I feel drawn to it, and that's where the disgust comes. It's right. like come along, <laughs> you know. And I've been doing that before oh, so much. All right. Yeah. Well, basically, um, think of it like this. Think of it that that uh, that we are all animals in the woods, mm. and that there are hunters out there who are setting traps. Mm. And that there's always a uh, something delicious to eat inside of the trap. Mm. And so we are all curious and interested in all of these traps out there because we think that there's a goodie in there. Mm. And the thought is, I can get the goodie and escape the trap. <laughs> or another way of thinking about it is, is that I can get away with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that that is the that is the thing that calls us. Mm. It calls us in the sense of that you can get the goodie and you don't have to pay for it. Mm. Uh, and while we can actually um, understand that that's kind of magical belief on the child's part, mm. and that when we grow up, we recognize that really that's not so true in the physical world uh but we generally it takes us a long time to let go of that in the mental world mm. so that we think that we can get the mental goodies without having to pay the price for it mm. now yeah. this is in fact really wrapped up in one's right view and so this is really kind of important stuff for you to recognize your disgust is now part of your right view. Yeah. Now, wrong view is where uh, the sutta starts. In fact, I should give you a bit of background on this. Uh, this is coming from sutta number 117, mm -hmm. the great 40, where the Buddha says in the beginning of the sutta, um, to pay attention, monks, I'm going to teach you right uh, noble samadhi with all of its requirements and attributes. Now, this is kind of funny. Uh, most people don't get those two things, but the requirements and the attributes. Uh, and then he talks about it as a unified mind. That when the mind comes together, it's unified which means no more conflict of interest, no more doubts, no more lies, uh, no more hurting others in order to get our way and all of that kind of stuff. So this is actually the goal of the path. 
of having the unified mind, the mind that's noble. And then he says uh, next that of the requisites, the first requisite and the important one is right view. But in a, uh, in a contextual way, we have to understand view in three ways. And the first one is the wrong view, which I can get away with it. In other words, it doesn't matter what the rules are. I can get away with it. Mm. One's right view, then, is no, you can't get away with it. Yeah. In other words, you must follow the rules because you cannot get away with it. This leads all the way into the magical belief system of the law of karma that would be stated this way, that good actions give good results and bad actions give bad results. And then the magical part, first part of it is true. The magical part is, and that will happen no matter what. It will eventually come to pass that everything you've done wrong is going to catch up with you. And that everything that you've done right will catch up with you. That's the magical part. Mm. And the way that the Buddha showed that was by bringing in other kinds of karma. Now, the third kind of karma is mixed karma. Uh, in fact, in several sutras, it talks about heavy and light versus in other sutras, it talks about dark and bright. Bright actions give bright results. Dark action gives dark results. Yeah. Uh, most people just think of it in the sense of good or bad. Uh, basically, uh, that good or bad that we're actually talking about here is not right or wrong, but it's do I like it or do I not like it? Mm -hmm. Because one of the magical things that can happen <clears throat> and often does is if I like it, it must be good. Mm. And if I don't like it, it must be bad. Mm. Okay. Mm. Which is also the kind of ignorance that I like it. Therefore, I want it and have to have it. Mm. Or I don't like it. And therefore, I have to do something about it. I have to take that pill, get rid of it somehow. Mm. Um. So back at the level of the mixed kind of comma. Um, first off, let's even define what is good or bad. If you bought some stock in a company and uh, on the stock market and the, and the stock went up, then the buying, the action of buying would be a good action, right? I'm not sure I agree with this. Because right, exactly. That's exactly where we're going with it. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> because in fact it is uh, the 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 answer at that level is that the answer or the result of the action determines the value of the original action. Mm. And so therefore it's very complicated to define what is a good action and a good result. Because oftentimes in our, uh, in, in our human experience, it's the result that determines whether the action was good or bad. But now let's look at one that's actually mixed. And that is, is that the, uh, uh, the referee throws a uh, penalty flag 
out on the field of the stadium where they're having a big championship. And half of the crowd stands with their arms in the air and roars, yay, yay, that was a good call. But the other half of the stand, they jump up and you know, put their arms in the air and they say, boo, boo, bad call. Yeah. All right. <laughs> was that call, was that action of the referee a good call or a bad call? Uh, that that's the same with that. I don't take positions like that. Usually. Exactly so. Yeah. That's exactly what this teaching is really all about, is to not take those kind of positions. Mm -hmm. But we can see that some good actions are actually good because the result is good and it's immediate. Mm. Yeah. This is where the Buddha really talked about it, and this is in several places, including uh, that very famous sutta of the lion's roar, Number 12, the Long Lion's Roar Sutta, is where he says that the extent of the mind of the Buddha is that he knows that karma is dependent, that is dependently arisen in this moment. Okay, so this is an important point. You can also look at it from the perspective of the four imponderables, or the things that cannot be figured out. And one of them is the results of comma. We do not know what the result of the comma is going to be. Mm. Yeah. And because of that, if we take that at just face value for what we just said, then that gives many people the idea, oh, well, I can get away with it. Mm. And so it's dangerous to teach some people this because that will throw them into wrong view. When, in fact, they were uh, better off when they had an uh, ordinary right view yeah. that you will get caught. Mm. Okay, because yeah. now we understand, all right, that uh, that comma is actually much, much more sophisticated than mm. that. Mm. Yeah. Um, the actual description of one's uh, ordinary right view has a lot of stuff uh, associated with magic. And one of the things that it actually talks about is, is that we may not have had a certain magical experience, but that we know that there are Brahmins and mystics who have uh, told us of these mystical experiences that we have, they have had. And not only do we believe those, that they have had those experiences, but we we thirst for them mm. and are going to be taking right actions in order to get them. Yeah. Now, this is part of ordinary right view, and you can see people doing that yeah. all the time. Yes. Yeah. So that a student who uh, um, has a teacher and the teacher has written in his own book on certain, certain day, at certain, certain time, I had a certain, certain life uh, uh, reincarnation experience. And I was this kind of person with this kind of robe on and did these kinds of things, okay? Mm. Full, full on story of that. And now the student wants it too. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, and so now the student is more interested in getting an experience than he is in straightening out his own mind. Yes. Mm. And so this is part of ordinary right view, uh, which is trying to do good things. Mm. So 
for some future good result. Mm. Merit in Thailand is strictly based on this Saibot, Takbot, and 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 all of that. Um, <clears throat> Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was a bit strange on on that, uh, and and referenced it in one way about that he doesn't say thank you. Okay. Because if the person who's being generous and puts the food in the bowl uh, gets a thank you, then that's their reward. Oh. And that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa wants them to generate their own reward, mm. that they feel good because they're feeling generous. Okay, yeah. Mm. As opposed to the other side of the coin would be, oh, I can't say thank you now because that will be the reward you get now, which means I'm robbing you of the reward you would get for it in heaven. Mm, okay. Which is even more magical belief. Yeah, yes. Okay. Mm. Um, same basically as do you pray in public or do you pray in private? Uh-huh. Yeah. If you right, that's one of the things that Jesus says. If you're praying in public, then this is your reward, you're praying. Oh. This okay. is it. This is all you get is the time you spend at, at the prayer. Mm. So you better might as well feel good while you're praying because this is all you get. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But praying in private, then, if you really modify the word prayer just a little bit uh, beyond um, beyond from prayer to meditation, but really uh, from prayer to investigation. Mm -hmm. I never understood don't know what Buddha taught. Go. I mean, Jesus, what do you say? I never understood prayer at all. Prayer? Uh, yeah. I, I prayer, never, okay. Uh, yeah. Here, here is what prayer basically has come down to mm. that you've probably seen a lot is, is that some dude wants something so bad that he wants God to change God's plan yeah. Yeah. in order to give this guy what he wants. Yes. But instead of changing the whole plan, which is real, maybe we can just magicalize it and twist it just a little <laughs> bit so that this guy would gets what he wants. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Now, the thing that we know is, is that not only is prayer generally completely ineffective, but in some cases is actually detrimental and scientifically provable so. Mm-hmm. If you keep telling somebody, oh, I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to pray yeah. for you, they feel really bad and yeah. they get sick, sicker yeah. and sicker. Yeah. Yes. Because it's as if that person is better than, than the other one and that person knows exactly what the other person is supposed to do and, and have the solution and all of that. Uh, yeah. I, Another way that I see uh, the, the word prayer used, and this is actually quite often, the way that I see it most, just because of the kind of position that I'm in, uh, Christians may use the word prayer more or less the way that I was saying it before. But mm -hmm. another way that the word is used is uh, it's the slough off end of a dialogue that the Christian has completely lost and he knows it. 
And so his parting shot is, well, I'll pray for you. Uh-huh. Okay, which is kind of a catty, um, uh, passive-aggressive kick uh, in the butt. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I can sense that sometimes with people, but I, I, yeah, that, that's it, yes. All right. Um, now, one of the words that prayer has been associated with is the word vigil. And in fact, that's the word that Jesus used on the Garden of Gethsemane. Can't you guys stay up? You see, the, the story was that Jesus was up all night. Buddhist monks are up all night on a frequent basis that pat him off. Mm-hmm. But, he, but none of his guys could do it. They all went to sleep on him. Mm-hmm. They couldn't maintain their wakefulness or uh, their awakeness in mm-hmm. uh, part of that training. So vigilness and wakefulness and coming out of our ordinary slumber is a part of what Jesus taught, mm-hmm. as well as things like um, uh, the kingdom of God is within you. Actually, the Greek is um, basilica, theos, mm-hmm. as if we've got a huge cathedral inside of us, a holy place. Mm-hmm. And that this is actually the home of God is within you, which means then if you want to find the kingdom of God, we've got to go within, which brings that whole aspect of um, uh, going inside uh, and uh, investigating, doing a vigil and that kind of stuff. So this is the uh, the kind of the message that Jesus uh, lost. Now let's look at the Lord's Prayer because it's quite famous. Mm-hmm. The first part of it that starts off is "Our Father who art in heaven, mm-hmm. hallowed be thy name." The word "Father" there is the word "Abba," and mm-hmm. the way that "Abba" has come about. In fact, it ha- that's the word "about." above Uh that's the word abba and it means those things that are bigger than us surrounding us about us and so um the abbey then is going to be the environment for um the the group or the individual and the abbot then is um the one that's in charge of the abbey so Um, In this regard, we're kind of mixing the metaphors between um, these, but this is where that kind of language comes from. So when uh, the 16th century uh, uh, King James Greek guys got a hold of this word Abba, they didn't understand that it, it has a real usage. And so the only thing that they could think of it was is that it's the father. But if you want to think of it like this, you're breathing in and out. You're breathing part of your environment. In a way, each in-breath and out-breath is full with God. And you can think of God as the father. But we have to kind of understand what we mean by the word God. But Jesus is talking about, here it is, our Father who art in this heaven. Okay, the heaven that is within us. Uh, this, is, this is a holy thing. 
um, and that what Jesus is then saying, uh, um, let let that peace that can be found within a natural peace, let that be for all of the people of the world. So this is actually a, a statement of metta. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the leading us not into temptation means that we should be able to learn to control our mind and deliver us from evil, the evilness of our own mind. So you can see that that kind of prayer does not have to have the fishy religious qualities to it. Mm -hmm. But in fact, in a different, slightly different translation, Mm -hmm. it actually is a restatement of um, the the purpose that Jesus was actually there for. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, by the way, was a big fan of Jesus. (laughs) Okay. And part of the reason for that was is because he got the Gospels in Thai language, but he got them kind of raw, without any Christian influence at all. Aha, uh-huh. okay. Mm. And so he could say directly, in fact, one of the conversations that I had with, uh, with Bhikkhu Buddhadasa uh, was about this very thing. Uh, and it was a quite a long conversation that lasted more than over just one episode but what the the question is is how could jesus's teachings be so spot on that's basically the question which means now we've got to show how the teachings of the buddha moved out of uh, bihar all the way into the mediterranean and at what times did that happen and what were the influences and other things like this? One of the one of the points that we can look at is is that in Egypt, only pharaohs were mummified mm. until about 300 BC, and then all of a sudden, anybody who had pocket change to have the ceremonies and all the work done got mummified so now they're starting digging up thousands of mummies that happened all starting at that particular time and yet before that there wasn't mm. so there was something then about that um that pharaohs emperors uh chinese emperors and others have the capability with the right sort of resources to gain immortality now everybody's got some kind of immortality. It, it like it it swept across everything, mm-hmm. and the idea behind it was is that that was when the idea from the Brahmins, because the old Brahmins back to karma, the Brahmins had the statement that we are Brahmins. We're the ones who do all the ceremony and, and basically wind up owning all the land because we take it when uh, at funeral times and other times. And so the before uh, the Aryan invasion, which we're not quite sure of exactly the time, it probably happened over centuries, but it happened way before the eighth century BC so that the Brahmins were losing their property, they were losing their control. Uh, And so they came up with the idea that we're Brahmins, we are special. We are born Brahmin and you are not born Brahmin. Mm -hmm. We were born Brahmin because we were good in the past 
Mm-hmm. And you were not born Brahmin because you were not good in the past. Okay, so that elitism that gave rise into the um, uh, the four caste system mm-hmm. actually existed in India way, way back into antiquity between the Brahmins and everybody else. But when the uh, uh, the invasion happened, probably from Persia, as the Persian Empire broke down, there was a lot of influence. Um, later, there was uh, Alexander the Great coming in. But uh, before that, in prehistory, the Aryans were the one who were lighter skinned, bigger in stature, had big armies. But not only did the armies come, but the, but the general population came. And one of the ways they did is when an army in the old days traveled, more than half the army were not actually in the army. They were there to support the army. Blacksmiths and uh, uh, wagoneers and uh, uh, animal keepers and all of these kind of people. They became then uh, the merchant class of mm-hmm. India. So that the sudras, the ones who were in originally there that were not Brahmins, they got pushed to the bottom. And then the ruling class, the class that the Buddha was in, the Aryan class, uh, were there who competed mostly with with the Brahmins. So this is the Brahmin story is we can at least keep our thing together because we were good in the past. Okay. Okay. So this is where all of that Kama stuff Mm. came from and that uh, by about the time of Alexander the Great, which happened, um, I'm not exactly sure of the dates, but Alexander the, uh, the Great was in India and got turned around and sent back out by either the predecessors of um, Asok, Asok himself, or uh, those right after, because we're talking about the 300 BC range of time. Uh, I think, in fact, um, that Asok was crowned in 310 AD, and that. Uh, uh, Alexander the Great, I'm not sure when he died, but I, the date 323 comes up, which meant that it could have been in the previous generation. Mm-hmm. But Asok came along, and then he was the one who did all of the pillars. They put everything in linguistics. In fact, part of the story about Lumpini is they didn't know where it was. Even in the 1970s, they didn't know where Lumpini was until they found uh uh, a pedestal that had all this writing on it from the time of King Asok. Asok knew where uh, Lumpini was and put down a marker for it. And they finally dug up that marker. It wasn't where they thought it would be, and that's why it took them so long to find it. But that's how they labeled Lumpini, which was the birthplace of the Buddha, that um, uh, they didn't know until in our lifetimes. Didn't know where it was, just had stories about it. But now we have absolutely hard evidence because they knew where it was in 300 BC, mm-hmm. which was the time that Alexander the Great was in India. And so now we have this connection that winds up having this is the time when all of those mummies started appearing in, in, in uh, um, Egypt. 
And we got to have to think there's got to be little threads or connections here someplace. Mm -hmm. And so that was my argument with Bhikkhu Buddha Das. And then there's the issue of the therapeutic, which gives us a, um, the word uh, therapy in English was uh, a group of healers in Alexandria. But if you look at the word therapeutic, you get Theravada immediately. Okay. <laughs> And that this group was well known. In fact, this was possibly the group that Jesus went to when he went to um, Egypt. Uh -huh. And then we have the white robe to scene or essence that predated Jesus by a hundred years that lived exactly the way that you would expect Buddhist monks to live, mm -hmm. including the ritual baths, which may have taken the ritual baths of the Jews and mixed it with the... Uh, the bathing rites that the Buddhist monks had and kind of put them together and everything like that. So we have a huge number of connections that are kind of feel that I know exactly where Jesus got his literature. Mm. And Bhikkhu Pitadasa says, no, we don't need any of those kind of connections because the Dhamma is the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that the Dhamma is available to all and sometimes all they need is a bit of a hint mm. Mm. yeah and so um that's a major connection that i see but christianity has actually lost what jesus was on about because they brought too much magic into it mm. they brought a fair amount of magic into the buddha but we can generally scrub that off like it was paint <laughs> <laughs> Um, so back to the comma then and going from that comma and the laws of comma that are associated with noble or excuse me ordinary right view we now come and look at um, supramundane right view mm -hmm. because supramundane right view is in fact the the beginning of the path the buddha's already stated this is the noble path mm. what we're actually getting it then is there's actually at least two different paths that buddhists have one is the path that they get on when they get interested in the dhamma and then the other one is the noble path because they have to make that noble step and once the mind becomes noble or noble-minded, in fact, when the, when the student begins to get nobly-minded or they take on a noble view, now the whole path becomes noble. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. And so uh, in the regard of the comma, then, there is the fourth kind of comma that the Buddha talks about. And that's the kind of comma that's neither bright nor dark that gives results. Oh, yeah. That are neither bright nor dark. Mm -hmm. There, hot eats lunch and he poops, cause and effect. <laughs> neither one would bright nor dark. Mm. Yeah. Okay, there is the, uh, uh, the action was eating, and that was neither bright nor dark, and the pooping was the result, mm. and that was neither bright nor dark. Yeah. And then the next point about it is, is the one that really uh, is curious and interesting. And he says, but this kind of comma leads to the end of comma. 
Oh. All right. So let's investigate that just a little bit. If the mind is noble to the point that we are on guard for, and uh, um, uh, let us say enthusiastically determined to be free from dukkha, then that alone is going to prevent us from having dark actions. We're not going to go around hurting people, giving dark results like that. Okay. But also we begin to get really, really here now oriented so that we don't go doing a whole lot of stuff for the distant future, expecting distant results. Mm. We stop doing a lot of stuff. Mm. Also, we stop doing things to get rid of, for instance, to get rid of anxiety because there's not much of anxiety there. Yeah. We don't go, go and buy guns to solve us of our fears because we don't have fear. So we don't go and do a whole lot of stuff. This is actually the kind of karma that does lead to the end of karma. Mm. Yeah. Not to the end of, or not to the beginning or the fruition of actual laziness, but it is that uh, we become very selective about the actions that we take. Mm. Yeah. Which this would be a good segue into the stuff that I said to you, but I'll resist and continue on. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk about that later. Mm. But meanwhile, Back, back to this sutta, the Buddha then, when he says that he's going to actually describe right noble view, mm. when I got to that point, I says, hot diggity dog, he's going to actually tell me what right view is. Mm. But then when I start reading, I become kind of disgusted or disappointed at least because I don't find a right view. Mm. Okay. <laughs> what we do find though, is it starts off with wisdom, the mm. faculty of wisdom, yeah. the faculty of investigation. And oh. that's the key word to keep investigating that one's right view is a view of look at what's going on mm. and see things clearly. Mm. That's what is one's right view and it's no longer a viewpoint, mm. but rather the viewpoint can be moved around, which okay. is the way of looking at compassion now. Oh. An example of that is, is that you want to take a picture of a bird, but the bird just went into his nest and now you can't see him. Mm. So you can't take a picture of it until you change your view. Mm. But if you try to climb that tree, <laughs> I don't think the bird's going to stay in the nest long enough for you to get his photo. <laughs> but you get what I'm talking about. That, is, uh, that always we think of the view from a viewpoint, mm. and always our viewpoint is guess who? Mm. Me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so noble right view then is to is to begin to change the viewpoint so that we can see other people's points of view. Oh. We can see a, a larger, broader picture that yeah. we can, in fact, hold a particular uh, viewpoint. Say about the Dhamma, but we can still be really, really good friends with other Dhamma teachers 
who teach a little bit different than I do. Just because he's my friend doesn't mean he's got to do it my way, see? Yeah. Um, so, um, but everything is worthy of investigation. Mm -hmm. And so this is one's right view. Mm -hmm. Now, let's go back and review a little bit with this in the sense of uh, we start with wrong view, ordinary right view, and super mundane right view or noble right view. The uh, the wrong view is chaotic. It's disgusting. It's uh, every man for himself. It is greed oriented. It is capitalism. And that the ordinary right view is much more uh, authoritarian in the sense of a, a king or a priest or uh, some sort of authority this, of the government. And in fact, in the West, we normally have four. We have four bosses. Each human that I know of has all four of these bosses. Even though they're disgusted with one of them or two of them, still we understand that for most of humanity, these four bosses exist. This, and I call it the greb. Mm-hmm. Government, religion, education, mm-hmm. and business. Yeah. These four all are in the business of lying. Mm-hmm. That's their job, is to lie to people and get away with it. Yeah. Business does this in the sense of you need our product. If you don't buy what I have to sell, you'll feel bad. Mm-hmm. And so there um, uh, is sort of like a sucker punch or another way of saying it, a bait and switch. That if I sell you, and this is where the young guys, my story is, is that in the old days, 1950s, they would have a fancy car on a a turntable. There was a a model level young lady in an evening gown. And the impression is, buy this car, you get this girl or one just like it. In other words, this car is a chick magnet. Yeah. Right? And and guess what? An awful lot of guys bought a car, and all they got was dents and a car payment. Yeah. <laughs> because chicks normally don't get <laughs> attracted to the chick magnet. They get attracted to the guy himself. But the automobile industry had told an entire generation of young men that, in fact, I think BMW is still in that business. Mm-hmm. It's selling thrill and sex and excitement yeah. when people, all they really need is transportation. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's government, or excuse me, that's business for us. Mm-hmm. And we can see it right down to the way that they package food. Mm. Yeah. Um, education, because education is required. Obviously, in the United States, homeschooling is one, not working, and two, it's still highly organized. Okay. But that education is a major thing. I mean, how many years were you involved in your lifetime? What, uh, probably... 
probably a whole lot more than 10%, probably 20% of your life was dedicated to this institution called education. Yes. All right. Same thing with religion. People, I mean, they're, they're captured by it. Mm-hmm. But also uh, government and politics and all the rules. Guess what? Every one of these has a set of rules, regulations, policies, and all of that. And so this is what we put into the web of this ordinary right view. Mm-hmm. as well as basically everything that you were ever told. Mm-hmm. Now, this ordinary right view that we have is actually uh, mostly stored information, remembered things, concepts, ideas about the way things are done, and that's stored in the part of the brain that Sigmund Freud would refer to as the superego. Mm-hmm. Having the ego, the superego, and the id. Mm. All right. So in a way, you can think of it is, is the id is the child, the wrong view, the ignorant baby who thinks he can get away with it. Mm-hmm. I never got into, I, I'm a sociologist, so I never got into the psychological. If you've got theory. sociology, you know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, though. I know. Yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> and that, the, well, uh, the superego that I mentioned, Eric Byrne knew what you just stated. And so he changed the names of this stuff from uh, super ego, ego and id, down to parent, adult, and child. And I really like that. Uh So it's our parent ego state, Mm -hmm. which is where we store not just the parents and what they said, Mm -hmm. but all the teachers, all the politicians, all the religious nuts, all the business people, all the educators, they get piled into this set of knowledge that we have that now we can refer to as our society. But we can also understand it from the Buddhist perspective that this is, in fact, the ordinary right view that we have is what he uh, calls that we get attached to that. And he calls that, then that attachment is sila bhatta paramasa. Seva Bhatta Paramasa means attachments to rights, rules, and rituals, and voila, that's exactly what we're talking about here. That's the ordinary right view is, so the, then the person will ask this question, how do I live my life? The kid or the ruffian or the ignorant one will say, any way I want to, as long as I can get away with it. Mm. And then the parent ego state, will say, oh, to have a good life, you've got to follow all the rules. If you do everything right, then you'll get the right reward. Mm -hmm. And you can see how both of those are failures. Mm. One's just a deeper level of dukkha than the other one. Mm. That they can't make all of the rules right so that everybody will follow the rules. In fact, there's a whole lot of people out there who are doing everything they can to get away with it. Yeah. No matter what the rules are. Yeah. <laughs> so rules don't change or don't, uh, the rule making and new rules are not the answer to wrong view. Right. But super mundane right view is personally to recognize that the way society works sucks. <laughs> yeah. 
is there is so much inequity and that no one gets out of it unscathed. Even the very rich wind up being very rich because they're very greedy. And their money doesn't change the way that they live. They just become basically more criminal in the sense they think now they can get away with it. Yeah. And so wealth is not the solution. But yet people think if they follow all the rules, they get all the right degrees, they buy the right house and get the right uh, trophy wipe, et cetera, like that, then they will get the reward that they're seeking, which Mm. is a sense of well-being. But they don't even know how to do that. So instead, they make a a change of it into thinking, oh, well, if I got that, then I would have a sense of well-being. Mm. Hence, we have this uh, 40-year-old life crisis uh, called uh, Harley Davidson in the United States, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I guess in Germany they call it BMW. Because <laughs> they make some badass motorcycles too. <laughs> <laughs> and so this guy is looking for a thrill because all of the education he did and all the right uh, getting the right job and building the right house and all of that, he's still now dissatisfied with Mm. life. He's done everything that he was told to do, Mm. and he has not gotten his reward. He may, in fact, be the CEO of the company, but that's still a ho-hum, so what? Yeah, yeah. He's got bragging rights, but even after (laughs) when he stops bragging to himself and to his friends, he winds up right back where he started, back into bad feelings again. So we need to get out of that and into this thing called super mundane right view. Mm-hmm. Is to come out of our selfishness, come out of our own personality, and begin to see things at a at a greater level. And mm-hmm. one of them is to begin to see this grab this uh, government, uh, religion, education, business cycle mm-hmm. that so many people are caught in, mm-hmm. because we get caught into it on a regular basis also. Yeah, whether we like it or not, one has to be part of it somehow. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus had the phrase, be in the world, but not of it. Uh-huh, okay. But not of the world, yes, yeah. okay. Yeah. However, there's another perspective, and that is with wisdom, we can manage that world of society yeah. with a plum. We can manage it smoothly. We can manage it nobly because we are not stuck in it anymore. Yeah, okay. Mm. Yeah. In a, in a way, we can take all of the furniture yeah. of, the, uh, of the world and sort of move it aside and put it against the wall so that we can make a dance floor. Mm, (laughs) And that dance floor then is my life. All of that stuff is way out on the edge. Mm, mm, Yeah. So that's the way of looking at it. So one's right view, one's right noble view then is the basis for uh, the practice. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a prerequisite for practice, but rather it's the basic foundation. And as our practice grows, this foundation gets stronger and stronger and capable of handling uh, 
the load or maybe the load gets lighter and lighter and we really didn't need that much of the foundation in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) That it wasn't really a foundation we needed. It was more like a launching pad and we got that. Mm. Yeah. So that's another way of looking at one's right view Mm. is that um, good trained, well-trained dogs that have the right equipment, like bloodhounds, can actually follow a trail to, to find someone who is, say, running away from the law. Mm. Like in one of my favorite movies, Cool Hand Luke, who was cool, and he did uh, escape into the swamp, and so here they go with the, with the dogs trying to locate him. But this was back in the 1930s, uh-huh. They didn't have the kind of equipment that we have today, like uh, drones. Mm. If the warden had sent out a drone over that uh, uh, swamp, he would probably spotted Cool Hand Luke immediately, and then we wouldn't have had a movie. <laughs> 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 All right. So now we know that basically we have been living our lives as dogs, sniffing our way through life, when in fact we could be in the air looking down on things in a much more noble way of uh, being above it. This is part of what we mean by being supramundane. Yeah. Is to be above the world so that we can see it really clearly. Mm-hmm. But we got to let go of the dang thing <laughs> and get up into the air mm-hmm. and get away from it all so that now we can begin to really see it. Yeah. Because the danger is, is that if we see something that we don't like, it'll pull us right back into it. Mm-hmm. Or if we fi- see something that we do like, mm-hmm. it'll pull us right back in. And now we're back into grasping and clinging again. Yeah. And so this is part of the reason why it's good to become secluded from the world. Mm-hmm. Get off into retreats. Yeah. Right now, everybody's doing that with Corona-19. Yippee-ki-yo-ki-yay, <laughs> people are taking a rest. <laughs> As a Dhamma teacher, I'm all for people staying in seclusion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like that part. <laughs> so, uh, by being secluded from the world, I think, uh, just as a side note, that humanity may not come back to the old way with such a ferocity of greed. Mm-hmm. That this is a time when people can begin to reflect upon their lives and figure out that there's better things to do yeah. than following the grab. Mm-hmm. That takes up so much of our time and our life mm-hmm. and our wants and our desires so that we can spend our time uh, making friends yeah. with each other. Yeah. And so this is one's right noble view. Now, the next part of the sutta is that which we have already discussed before, but I'll now take it uh, uh, again and say that in this sutta, unlike the standard way that um, the Eightfold Path is normally listed in most literature, which is right view, uh, right attitude, we talked about it as uh, right attention, then it does sila, and then it puts right mindfulness and right effort at the end of the thing with samadhi. Mm. 
That's not really the way that this sutta is lined up. It takes those three elements of uh, morality or sila, right speech, right livelihood, and right uh, um, um, action, uh, and puts that after. Mm. So that the um, the way that we look at it now is is that one's right view, one's right attitude, one's right uh, sati or mindfulness, and one's right effort brings about the unification of mind. Mm. And then the unification of mind brings about one's right action, mm. one's right speech, and one's right livelihood. Because why? Because those things should be based upon our own right view and our own right understanding rather than following a set of rules that we heard at the temple. Okay. Yeah. So uh, in, in the Buddhist religion or the religion of, of the, um, let us say, the, the working peasant class of Thailand, uh, is still quite caught up with this. In fact, Robert and I just had a long discussion that included that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa had a, an amazing uh, influence upon the intelligentsia of Thailand. Mm -hmm. And that part of the way that he did that was that he gave a set of lectures that have been, that in fact, Robert is helping to get into print now uh, and that, because he's really excellent in, in Thai language, I'm really glad to have Robert as a friend. Mm -hmm. He does all the kinds of research that I am not able to do. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, he said that there was a set of lectures that was given to uh, the judiciary of Thailand, but it wasn't like giving it to, the, say, the nine Supreme Court justices. Rather, it was given at the uh, the biggest auditorium that the uh, uh, that the Justice Department of Thailand had, and it was literally filled with all of the justices and basically all of the law professors of the uh, entire country and everything like that. And so it was with through the legal way that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and this was back in the, I think this was in the 1950s even. Mm -hmm. But since that time, um, there are certain universities like Thomasat University uh, that have a huge um, organization of students that are dedicated to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Okay. Now, what we're looking at then now is, is that Thailand has actually gotten um, the, the, the way to think of it is like a lower class, a middle class, and an upper class. Mm -hmm. We can think of that uh, in Thailand is the way that Buddhism is also structured. So that you have a very, very large um, lower class that see Buddhism as the Buddhist religion. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then uh, with all of the magic of the uh, belief in rebirth and, and uh, Tom Boone and building temples and all of the kind of stuff that the laity do, including pushing their sons into uh, becoming a monk. Okay. <laughs> um, as part of the culture. 
But now, thanks to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, we have this huge, like millions of people who were in the middle and upper middle class who see Buddhism in a completely different way now. They say it now is much more of a way of life. Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually going in the direction of actual noble because it's seeing things from the problem of life is selfishness mm -hmm. and our personality. And that uh, the noble right view is to see things at a higher level uh, that has a lot of altruism and generosity and all of that kind of stuff built into it. Mm. And now we can look at that actually upper class in Thailand is surprising because it not only has a lot to do with the aristocracy of Thailand, not just the intellectuals, but I'm talking about old money aristocracy mm. um, the size of it an indication is is that King Mongoot I think he died in 1868 and he had like 50 children maybe it was 47 but mm -hmm. that was okay now from 1860 how many kids are going to branch out of 47 royal princes and, and whatnot because there are a huge number of princes and princesses in Thailand. But mm. the surprise is, is that the nobility of Thailand had very good access to the very best monks who really knew the teachings of the Buddha. And there's one prince that I know of who's really, really quite famous. He's very interesting. He was one of the children of Mangut. He was born in 1860. His name is Vichat, but I'll send you a link on uh, Google, I mean, on uh, Wikipedia uh, about him. Uh, he uh, was born in 1860. When he was eight years old, Chula Longhorn became the king. And he and Chula Longhorn were really, really close. And so uh, uh, Vichai um, actually reformed Buddhism, wrote books and was um, very, very uh, well known as being one of the highest intellectuals in, in Thailand of his day. But he disrobed as a monk because he was in line for the throne. And so he disrobed, became a king, and then died about two years later, 1920 or so like that, which brings us well within the lifetime of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. And there's a big connection between this particular monk uh, and um, let us call it the upper elite of the Buddhist monks in Thailand. They have several categories. One is the category of Chao Kun. And then uh, at the highest level, there's Samdet. Samdet and uh, also there's the level of Sangha Raj. And the word Sangha Raj, you can see, is the king of the Sangha. Mm -hmm. Okay, the word Samdet is much more like the prime minister. But these are the, the guys. And that um, there are six of them in Thailand. And this is the very, very top. And then one of those guys is going to be the absolute top. His name at that time was uh, Buddha Gosajarn, and he actually bailed Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa out 
of the uh, problems uh, and turmoils of the 1930s when Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was actually spreading the Noble Dhamma in mass and that he got in trouble for that. And the trouble that they were uh, saying that he was causing was that he was splitting the Sangha, a Sangha de Sessa, a breakup of the Sangha. But uh, the noble monks were part of this in Bangkok. And this one monk who was associated with the king, that's how he became the Sumdet, in fact, is this, the king was his teacher. And that when the when he uh, as as part of the royalty as well as part of the monkhood promoted this guy to be the top monk of the country, he then bails out Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and uh, by partially by launching an investigation of the suttas, is exactly what is in there. What it comes out is is that the teachings of rebirth was the Buddha knew all about that because he had Brahmin students. But any time that the Buddha would give recommendations about rebirth, he would say to come out of it. And he also, just like he did many other words, mm -hmm. uh, examples would be uh, Nibbana, Aryan, uh, Brahman. Um, the Buddha would change the definitions of these words. Mm -hmm. Because the word Nibbana actually meant to train an animal. And that, an animal was nibbana when it was domesticated, or that food was cool when it was taken out of the fire. You can't eat food when it's uh, hot, and you can't really put an animal to work when it's wild. Mm -hmm. And so this is the idea of nibbana. But mm -hmm. now it's magic. Yeah. Now people think of nibbana as something magical rather than just yeah. be cool. Mm -hmm. uh, the yeah. word Aryan. Mm -hmm. We've now, um, it was actually a racial issue, but the Buddha is using it in the sense of high class or high quality. Mm -hmm. That one must be born in the lineage of the nobles. Mm -hmm. That there's, there's very small little similarities between what Jesus taught and what the Buddha taught. And it's like, okay, they must have gotten together on this. And <laughs> yes. that is the whole idea of being reborn in the, in the Jesus was way is not that you've got to go through the wound again, but that you've got to reborn your mind in, in the spirit. Yeah. Okay. And this is exactly what we mean by the change of lineage mm. when one becomes noble. Yeah. And so this is that old quality of noble. Uh, and so we, we see that these words he's changed around mm. uh, in their various meanings because that was the only language he had to go with in the first place. Yeah. So um, in, in the way of looking at view, we have to stop thinking of view as a viewpoint mm -hmm. and much more like a drone that moves around, that can mm -hmm. search, that can see overhead without crash landing back on Earth. Or with that. So it's super mundane in that, in that sort of way of looking at it. And so this is that Pali word of uh, Lokatara. Lokatara actually means, or the word that's uh, uh, translated into uh, transcendent. I don't like that word too much, but uh, 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 supramundane, because it's above the mundane world. It's out of the mundane world. This is what we mean by Lokatara. Mm. And so one of my students had the... Uh, uh, 
the idea. I don't know where he got it from, but I like it very much. He says that everyone, every human being is an emperor of his own pile of dirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone is an emperor of their own pile of dirt. The question is, are you going to be buried under your pile of dirt? Mm-hmm. Are you going to be able to sit on top of your pile of dirt? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you're sitting on top of your pile of dirt, that means you're sitting on top of the world. That's super mundane. That's Bokatara. Yeah. It's not being in the world. We're being so but going back to that analogy that I gave a while ago of let's clear the dining hall yeah. of all of the furniture and mm. make a dance floor. Yeah. So that all of that stuff is pushed away mm. over to the side. But mm. another way that I like to look at it is sitting on top of our own world. Mm. This is one's noble right view. Mm. And so this is what then goes together with one's right um, sati. Mm. Sati and effort, Buddha Mm. says, runs in circles around one's right view. Mm. And then we add, and and this is actually the way that we practice anapanasati, is that right view right uh, uh, effort and right sati run and circle around each other mm-hmm. for a while while we're cleaning the mind. And then we add right attitude so that now the four of them are together. Well, what is that right attitude? The attitude of a winner, the attitude I can do this, mm-hmm. the attitude that I am on top of the world, mm-hmm. at least my own pile of dirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that's the attitude that we have. And that's then these four things come together is what then gives right uh, noble samadhi or right unification of mind. So what what does that mean? Basically, when we're talking about first jhana, we gather the jhana factors together. There are five of them. But Mm -hmm. the unification of mind has four constituent components, but together... There are five, including the right noble uh, unification of these things. So it's not just the four individually, but when they come together as a unit mm-hmm. is when it becomes a unified mind. And many people don't understand it all. They think about right noble concentration. What does that mean? I go around with great big glasses on. <laughs> Or that the only lens I have on my camera is a telephoto lens? Mm. Okay. Because if we have that kind of concentration, then we don't have anything like right view. Mm. So it could not possibly at all be right noble concentration. But it is very specifically pointed out that this is unification of mind. Mm. Yeah. Now, when the mind is unified... Mm. We don't lie. Therefore, our speech is good. We're, uh, when, when the mind is unified and whole with all the security and everything there, we don't find enemies. All we find is friends. Yeah. Why? Because when we're friends, we join together. When we're enemies, we separate. Mm. No unification there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so any way that you can think of the mind being unified, that means that uh, we're not going to be doing something that would keep it from being unified. So if the mind is unified, which means now we're free from wanting, because wanting something we don't have 
is not a unified mind. Yeah. But if we we ha we're content and we have everything we want right now, then we're unlikely to go rob the house next door mm. or yeah. stick up someone or, or whatever. We're just not going to do that because we're, we're mm. good to go. We're content. We've got mm. what we need, what we want. And so in that regard, our sila becomes quite high class mm. quite easily mm. to where it really is possible for someone to struggle mm. through uh, a set of rules so mm. that they become a goody two-shoes. They keep every rule. Let us say at a university, you've got one kid and he's just, you know, mm. uh, but the problem is, is that he's a misfit. He's an er nerd. Often he's in mental turmoil mm, mm. about how to follow the rules. That the only thing he's got is that guidance of I can follow the rules. Mm. But that kind of mind is now not free from suffering at all. Mm. So we have to turn the thing upside down and say, oh, what we're going to do is get the mind fit for work. Mm. We're going to get the mind unified and whole. And then we don't have to worry about our behavior. Our behavior is automatically going to be very high class, yeah. very noble, in fact. Mm -hmm. And so the uh, sila is not the cause of perfection. It's the result. Mm -hmm. Well, perfection is not a good word to use. <laughs> perhaps, purif perhaps purification of mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this is the Eightfold Noble Path that we have talked about today in um, a very formal way. But by doing so, we can see how all of this stuff fits together yeah. and how the Eightfold Noble Path then, when we put it into practice, we put it into practice using Anapanasati as a, as a vehicle. Mm. And that as Anapanasati as a vehicle for practicing the Eightfold Noble Path, that then fulfills all of the points of the uh, uh, four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana. And the Satipatthana then, through Anapanasati, is practiced then for the fulfillment of the Sambhojana. Mm -hmm. Now, um, it's kind of interesting in the way that um, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Eightfold Noble Path is discussed in great detail, especially in the uh, Mahasatipatthana Sutta in the Dinganakaya. But that in the Anapanasati Sutta, there is no mention of the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths. But what the uh, uh, Anapanasati Sutta has in it instead is the Sambhojana, the seven factors of enlightenment. But when you look at the seven factors of enlightenment, da -da, there you find the Eightfold Noble Path with a couple of pieces missing. And what are the pieces that are missing? Well, Sila is the part that's missing, but it's got a couple of new things put into it. But basically what makes the Sambhojana, the Sambhojana means uh, the seven factors of awakening or the factors of enlightenment. So these are the factors that we will have. The thing that distinguishes in the seven factors of enlightenment from the Eightfold Noble Path is one word, 
And that one word is unremitting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when students begin to practice the Eightfold Path, they begin to practice the Eightfold Path intermittently. Mm -hmm. But as they gain skill, that intermittent practice gets to be more and more repetitive over and over and over again to the point that it becomes unremitting. Bang, 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 bang. That's a little bit too often for the bangs. I'd say a bang for the in breath and a bang for the out breath. So, mm. bang, mm. bang, like that. Mm. But it's still unremitting. Mm. And so, the factors of enlightenment first is sati. Here, sati is king. This is why I keep putting to the students your number one. Um, skill to be developed is sati to the point that it becomes unremitting and it keeps coming back and coming back. Why? Because when sati is not there, we're going to be in hindrance more than likely. Mm -hmm. But when sati is there, we're going to come out of the hindrances. And so the second point is um, investigation. Unremitting investigation. We keep looking, we keep looking, we keep looking, but we never draw a conclusion. Why? Because if you draw a conclusion, that conclusion will change and there will be back in suffering, disappointed. Our conclusion wasn't permanent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so we don't draw conclusions, we keep drawing. We keep looking, we keep investigating. Well, now what we look like is, is that, in fact, in this regard, the two first items on the list of the Buddha in the Eightfold Noble Path are now reversed. Because this investigation, unremitting investigation, is, in fact, one's right view. To keep investigating, to keep going with wisdom, to keep figuring things out. But here, mindfulness, why? Because mindfulness, if we don't have sati then we can't have investigation. We can only investigate when we remember to investigate. And so sati becomes king here. Sati is number one. But right effort then takes an, an, a marvelous transformation when it becomes unremitting. It's no longer an effort. Now it's actually an energy on its own. But it, it's easy. An example of that is if you've got to push the car off, and it's dead still, pushing is a lot of work. But once you get it rolling, now it's kind of easy to get it rolling, and you don't even want to get it rolling too fast. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, it, begin, it gains a momentum of its own, or an inertia. Mm -hmm. And so when that inertia or that unremitting uh, energy occurs, that means that that's the fulfillment or the fruition of one's right effort. In the beginning, it takes effort. It does. To remember to throw that stuff out of the mind and yeah. take a deep breath and to enjoy the moment. Yeah. Goes against the grain of personality. But now that we have unremitting effort based upon unremitting mindfulness and unremitting investigation, now... The fourth item on the list is actually unremitting pity. Now, here the word pity is, is much softer 
rather than the really, really strong rapture, but rather it's kind of joyful, unremitting joy. In fact, that's the word that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa uses here, is, is that it's joy, it's just happiness, it's just satisfaction is possibly the right word here to use. And only then does the next item come. So we've got unremitting um, mindfulness, unremitting um, investigation, unremitting effort or energy, unremitting joy. With that joy then comes peacefulness. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that Anapanasati step four is getting the body to be uh, tranquilized or peaceful. They don't recognize, no, you have to have the joy and the empty mind before the body will actually settle down and come to rest. And you can see that in this place, because it's item number five on the list is when the when the body becomes relaxed. Okay. Then the next item is um, equanimity, and that a lot of people misunderstand that. Uh, I would say. When, when they use the word balance, I'm going to say, yes, we can use the word balance, but now put that balance wheel that we're talking about balance on a train. And let that train go and chug, 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 and, and uh, forward and backward and, and side to side motion. And now how is that balance doing? Yeah, I never understood the word balance either. That's Okay. Yeah. Well, here's what it means. If you can understand this, I'll give you this term. It's sea legs. Equanimity means sea legs. Can you keep your balance when you're on a boat? Mm -hmm. Land lovers, they can't stand. Sometimes they'll get knocked around. But the, but the sailors, they know what to grab and how to grab and how to put what part of the weight on where the foot is positioned. And they can walk around even while the bottom of the boat is or the floor of the boat is or the deck rather is all over the place okay uh, this, this is exactly mm -hmm. how we're going to then manage that world when we're lokatara when we're above the world it doesn't matter how much the world is shaking we're going to maintain our balance or our equanimity or our sea legs mm -hmm. That's how we are able to be the emperor of our own pile of dirt. Even though it keeps shifting, we can still maintain our posture mm -hmm. by shifting around so that we're still on top of it. Mm -hmm. That's what equanimity means. Uh -huh. It means sea legs. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And now with that, we come to that unremitting samati mind or the unremitting mind that is whole. We cannot have really have that mind that's really whole if it gets shaken around. So that's why the sea legs are needed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we can maintain our balance or maintain and gather together that ability to be just one person. Because most people are a crowd. They go from this you know, this to that. They go from I'm angry to I'm sad to I'm hungry to I got to go to the bathroom to I'm a banker. 
or I'm a carpenter, or I'm a parent, or I'm a this or a that, okay? So you can see how uh, there's a whole crowd of us there. Yeah. So the question, who am I, is a long list of things until we get that balanced, organized mind. Mm. And then when they ask that question, who am I? The answer is, duh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of come and it's about the only word that seems to fit is the is the word human, but mm. that's not last. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I actually I I haven't had so much problem with defining myself in that way. Uh, looking for who I am or who I am not because I, I kind of knew I'm not I'm I'm all of those things uh, but really not any of them no exactly yeah it, it's it's kind of undefinable in that way yeah in that way you're right our concepts fail us yes yeah it because so, and the reason for it is because all the knobs and and uh, buttons and and aspects of this concept, it's yeah. just too hard to put down into words. Exactly. It's far too big and far too complex. Yeah. Mm. And yet it's unified. It's, mm. There's just one thing there. Mm. Yeah. And so this is the um, the Eightfold Noble Path in its fruition is the Sambhojana. Mm. And so that's how those teachings fit together. Mm -hmm. Just like Paticca Samapada fits under the second noble truth. Mm -hmm. This is the Eightfold Noble Path, and the Eightfold Noble Path is these factors that wind up being unremitting, but mm -hmm. they're still factors of the uh, Eightfold Noble Path. Yeah, okay. With these two extras thrown in, and that is peace and sea legs. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any questions about the Eightfold Noble Path now? <laughs> Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes sense, and you it does, it fits right together, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and you kind of said it to before too, but but things are added now that makes even more sense. So, yeah, it's um, no, it's um, I, don't, I don't have any questions. No. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> well, I like your gushing. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, actually, I think I've been experiencing much of this now. All that the confidence has come uh, that I, I kind of know I can change it, even if I cannot change it right now, always. But but also this, uh, I'm I'm pleased to see that I can see it too. I'm it, it's. Um, um, 
a big thing. And, and this disgust and all of that kind of fell into place. Uh, yeah, I think I had, yeah, uh, uh, let's see. Anger uh, could being bothered or disturbed or agitated. Is that is that kind of anger things? Let's talk about that next time because that's okay. quite a topic. Okay. Uh -huh. That's quite a topic. And in fact, agitation and anger are just the same thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That Book of Buddha Dasa makes the point that that's hell state. Yeah, okay. That we're reborn in hell when we're angry. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Mm. But um, uh, seeing it closer and closer as it comes, um, we should take a time to, to talk about that. Yeah. Next mm. time. So remind me when you call and we'll, we'll do yeah. that then. Mm. So long as you understand the... Um, the value and the use of the noble right view, mm. then things begin to fall into place very well. Mm. 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 Yeah. Yes, they are falling into place. That's very nice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's end this conversation. And then we'll talk about the emails that I sent to you. Do you yeah. have a few more moments to talk about that? Yes. All right. Well, we'll check out now. Yes. Uh, don't hang up. And we'll just turn the, the video off. Mm -hmm.